Good afternoon, brethren. Very glad to be here with you. Thank the ladies for the special music. And I certainly appreciate the fine sermonette by Dr. Scott Winnell. And uh, we off to a good start. We had 195 attendants on the little slip here, but I noticed four or five more coming in here as I was coming back at the break. So we must have around 200 after all. We don't want to fall below 200, you know. That should be a problem. Anyway, we're grateful for the growth we're having. My wife and I did have an excellent trip to Canada, as was mentioned, and really appreciated being up there. We hadn't been there for about four years, so it was good to be up there again. That is one of our major headquarters areas outside of the United States. And, of course, the largest work outside because of the number of of uh, television stations and the income and the impact that they're making from Canada. And I'm very grateful they are sponsoring the work even out in the in uh, Hong Kong. And, of course, that's really a wonderful start, as Mr. Ames mentioned, so we're grateful for that also. We had 258 people there for Pentecost, but that was the Toronto church with about 106 other smaller churches around all came in. So it was a very nice group. Mr. and Mrs. Weston are doing an excellent job, and we're grateful for the way they're doing and all the leadership is doing up there. Very fine offices. They have new offices. I wanted to see that. They have a new television studio they're developing, but they haven't developed it yet. I just saw the room. They really haven't got the equipment in. Mr. Tom Baca, I think, would love to have that big room. It's a great big room they're using, and it will be even bigger than our studio, but they have kind of a warehouse for that, so it's going to be very, very nice, and I hope they get the good equipment in there, and it's going to be a nice studio. We also were able to visit and have dinner one night with the Westons and with Mr. and Mrs. Winston Goss. He is one of the oldest local elders in Canada and a very dedicated man, And some of you remember two or three years ago, we were praying for him, were asked to pray for him around the world because he had cancer all through his body and was just given a few months to live. And he, yes, he had not been just to a chiropractor. He'd been to medical doctors and hospitals and did have cancer throughout his body. He has been supernaturally healed by God. Supernaturally healed. They say the cancer is all gone and cancer usually just just go away. So we are very grateful for that. And we need to realize, brethren, I want to talk about this several times a year. God is our healer. We've got to understand that. God Almighty is our healer. And as the disease epidemics that Jesus Christ prophesied and many other parts of the Bible prophesy for the time of the end, as the diseases get worse in general because of our way of life, as people get more sickness and all kinds of infirmities and problems, and as the prophesied actual disease epidemics and pandemics began, many doctors and hospitals will be overwhelmed. It's all right to go and to check up and find out what you have. And there are things you can do and sometimes things you should do. Each one has to decide where to draw the line. But when it comes to cancer, when it comes to AIDS, when it comes to the Ebola virus, when it comes to a number of other diseases that are coming along, God is the only ultimate answer. 
And we have to really understand that and face that fact. And all of you, brethren, and the brethren around the world, and I'm preaching and really often picture in my mind, brethren, you people down in Perth, where my wife and I were a few years ago, about as far away as it is to get from where we are now, in Perth, Australia, and Cape Town, South Africa, hello, from Charlotte, and all the other places. As all you brethren around the world realize, these things are coming as we see the horrible floods coming down the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, as we see the worst wildfires in Arizona history occurring right now, as we hear about the increasing damage to the crops from alternating floods and fires and drought, because vast areas of Queensland, Australia, have had their crops damaged by the terrible flooding there. Other parts of Australia are suffering drought, And we've had great drought, which is occurring right now today in massive parts of Texas and Arizona and Oklahoma and other southwestern states. And the food supply gets short and the money for food gets up and more and more people are beginning to starve around the world. And finally, in our western nations, we're going to realize that God is intervening and these disease epidemics are going to come. And we've got to know God, trust God, walk with God or we're in trouble. He is our only healer and the ultimate when these things start to come. So please think about that. We need to realize the spiritual malaise the church got into back in the 1970s and 80s. A lot of problems occurred. Some sin began to come out that people hadn't been aware of, and it discouraged them. Then we had the breakup, the breaking apart of the worldwide church of God, a few years after Mr. Herbert Armstrong's death, as they began to change the doctrine, got completely away from the truth. And many of you were discouraged. Some of you in this room were discouraged very much. I know that. And many of you brethren around the world. And sometimes it hurts our basic faith to see those things happen. We've got to learn to see beyond the immediate. God allowed some of those things to happen for a great purpose. And as Dr. Hay told me when I asked him about it one time, he said these things had to happen. The church split up had to happen because something like that had to occur in order for the Laodicean church to begin. And the Laodicean church era has to begin before Christ will come, according to the Bible. So God had to allow something like that to come, and it did test our faith. It tested our faith in Christ leading the church Some say, well, they can't trust in one-man government anymore because of what Mr. Dukats did. It tested their faith in regard to healing because they completely did away with that in the way we understood it before. They did away with everything else almost that we believe that made us distinct. And so it hurt people. It hurt their faith. It hurt their attitude. You and I have got to see beyond that. We've got to see what God is beginning to do right now. And we've got to realize the eternal God says, I change not. He said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, as you know. So this spiritual malaise affected people for some time and is still affecting many of you around the world, even in the living church of God. We must understand that. We must rebuild and we must grow in faith beyond what we ever had before. We don't want to just get back to the faith we had in God's church in the early 1950s. We had a lot of people healed then, but we've got to go way beyond that toward the very time of the end. Christ talks about the great false prophet even pulling fire down from heaven. That's what he said. And remember in Revelation 13, verse 13, he would bring fire down from heaven. 
Other miracles, false miracles are going to occur. And as you read throughout the Bible, whenever God allowed the false members, ministers to perform miracles or signs, he let his true ministers also perform true signs and usually more powerful signs. Remember, Moses turned his rod into a snake, and then the magicians did, but then his snake ate up their snakes. <laughs> All that kind of example is throughout the Bible. God is going to give those of us who are, who are faithful even greater power and the kind of miracles that Christ did, not false miracles, not shining crosses and voices in the night and that kind of thing, but true miracles along the line that Jesus Christ himself did. So let's get back and think about that. Our God is real. These things are real. And the events in this book are happening. And they're happening big time. And the promises of God need to begin to happen big time. And if we can rebuild the faith that we ought to have and beyond what we ever had before, we will see those things happen in our age. So please understand that. Turn with me, if you would, brethren, to Matthew. I'm going to begin in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew uh, chapter 10 in your Bible, and turn there with me, beginning in verse 1. Jesus Christ, when he had talked with the twelve disciples, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out. So he gave them power over demons. We are to have power over demons and to heal all kinds of sickness. Notice the wording, brethren. You say, well, my AIDS is incurable. Or the Ebola virus is incurable or something. No, it's not. How big is God? Nothing is impossible with God. Christ had power over all kinds of diseases and all kinds of sicknesses. And then he names the 12 apostles and he says then in verse 7, as you go, preach. So the first thing we're to do is to preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God, as it is called in most places, the kingdom of heaven, not in heaven. The kingdom governed by heaven is at hand. Christ was there as the representative. First, preach the gospel. Second, then what do you do? Heal the sick. The message is to first preach the gospel, then heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. And if you see a little note by the word raise the dead, you'll see in the footnote that the the basic uh, received a text omits that phrase. Christ did not tell his apostles to raise the dead. That's not a basic thing we're necessarily going to do, although Peter raised one person and Paul raised one person. It's not impossible, but that was not a general command. That's not supposed to be in the basic received text that we are to use. And I think it might be helpful to know that. So heal the sick, though, and uh, it says, cast out demons, and freely you've received, freely give. So the three main things Jesus told them to do over and over, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. You look it up. I won't repeat all the places where it's mentioned. I think it's mentioned again in Mark chapter 6 and many other places. Those are the three basic things that were part of the gospel, part of the message, and the part of the activity of the true ministers. Notice also over in Luke chapter 10, if you would. Luke chapter 10. First, he sent out the 12 apostles, but this is very important because so many people have in their brain, and some of you might have that, all of these things were just for the apostles. No, they weren't. They were not just for the apostles. Notice in verse 1 of Luke 10, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, 70 young men in addition 
to the 12 apostles. So he had at least 72 people out uh, doing, I'm sorry, 82 people out doing these things. 70 others also, and he sent them out, and he said in verse 8, whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Notice verse 9, heal the sick. So they were to go out and preach, and then he says, heal the sick, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come upon you. What about casting out demons? Well, it doesn't say that specifically, but he must have said that because notice in verse 17, then the 70, not just the 12 apostles, the 70 other young men who were not apostles, nothing is ever said about them being apostles. These other 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are are subject to us in your name, in the authority of Christ. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He was there when Satan was cast down the first time after a heavenly battle that took place way back when, described in Isaiah 14. There's going to be another heavenly battle, you know, that's described in Revelation 12. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on the serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. If we have real faith in God, brethren... And I know we've lost a lot of that childlike faith that some of us used to have. We've got to rebuild that. I can remember going right down to the swamps in East Texas and Louisiana and through that part of the country when I was 21, 22, and 23 years old on baptizing tours. And there were snakes. Sometimes we saw them. We'd just beat the water and trust that God would frighten them away, which he did. But we would go down there and baptize people. One time we baptized Mr. Hal Baird. Some of you older brethren remember him. He became a pastor rank minister. And Raymond Manera and I baptized him in 1951 in a swamp outside Beeville, Texas. And we had to shine the flashlight to see because it was about midnight. We were late getting there and he was late getting off work and it was late at night. But we baptized him anyway. We had a childlike faith that God would take care of us. And he always did. He always did. Ten and a half weeks, 17,500 miles. In the next year, 11 full weeks, 19,000 miles. And the next year, I took Dr. Hay out. He was my leader in academic and editorial, but I was his leader in baptizing and dealing with people in those ways. And I took him out on the first tour he'd been on and helped train him in that. And I was just half the summer. Then Raymond, I mean, Norman Smith met him at my home in Joplin, And uh, they went on the rest of the way, and I came back to get out the magazines. But God always protected us. No, nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Brethren, when we're giving more of this power, let's understand that. And we ministers will have to understand that. We must not get the big head. It's not us doing anything. It's Christ doing it through us as very weak human servants. So don't rejoice in this power you have but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So we have to have the attitude of humility and know that God is doing it. As we develop that attitude, as we develop that absolute faith in God, and as the time of the end really is approaching more than ever, far more than ever, these things are going to begin to happen, and they're going to be happening to those true servants of God. Let that be us. We are not perfect. We do not claim to be perfect. But most of us in this room, I think, really want to do the work with all our hearts. And we want to have these gifts. We do believe in God. 
We do believe in God's Word. We believe in the importance of getting out God's message. And we do believe in God's form of government. Some of these that don't have that are, of course, splitting up and having problems with their voting and their posturing and their politics. Because that's not God's will. And they're not learning the lessons of trusting in Christ to lead His church. But if we obey Him in that... And all the other parts of it, we've got to obey all the other parts of the Bible too. God will use us. And we want to have that attitude. Now turn back to Matthew again. And this time I want to turn to Matthew chapter 8. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8. Here in verse 16... Jesus had been there, and he had healed Peter's wife's mother. Peter was supposed to be the first pope, but he had a wife. (laughs) The popes are not supposed to have wives now, of course. They've changed the whole doctrine of Christ on that. But he had a wife, and he had a mother-in-law. And when verse 16, evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all. He didn't heal some. He healed all. Now, I don't, we, we do not do this to the same degree. And I'm the first one to know that. This was God in the flesh. He had greater miracles. And some of his apostles may have done greater miracles later, like Peter's shadow passing over people. But certainly back then he did greater miracles. And he had more power than any human being because he was God in the flesh. So he healed all who were sick, not some, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, and notice, brethren, he's quoting from Isaiah as the word of God. Constantly, Christ quotes from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and other parts of the Old Testament as the word of God. And know the Protestant churches think, well, that was just the Hebrew writings, and we can't be too definite about that. And then they believe parts of the New Testament, that is, those parts that are convenient for them to believe, but they don't believe the whole Bible. He quoted the whole Bible as inspired. So Isaiah wrote, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So Christ healed all with these various diseases because it had been prophesied by Isaiah. He, Christ, the coming Messiah, took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So it did mean specific healings because Christ fulfilled it by healing people of all kinds of diseases. And that's what it said and that's what it meant. Now turn over to chapter 9 of Matthew. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic, a man totally paralyzed, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said, Uh, to the paralytic son be of good cheer your sins are forgiven you what does this have to do with healing everything everything because you're really studying your bible that even some of the protestant theologians acknowledge this although they don't follow through it on in the way we do but they acknowledge that the bible indicates that healing is the forgiveness of sin sin is involved And you could call it physical sin or physical mistakes or whatever, but it is breaking physical laws that damage our body. We're told back in 1 Corinthians 6 that we're to take care of our bodies. Glorify God in your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, and we're supposed to do that. 
And when we don't glorify God in our body, we'll often have sickness or disease come on us. And we do need to understand that. So he said, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes, these self-righteous religious leaders of the Jews said, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he didn't have to be very brilliant. He knew the way they thought. He probably saw the smirk on their face. He said, why do you think evil in your hearts? But which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk, but that you may know, this is something they ought to have known, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and walk. He arose, and the multitudes marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. He gave this power to Christ. He gave this power as Jesus conferred it on the apostles and the 70 others also to do the same thing over and over and over during the three and a half ministry of Christ. And after that, for a long time, as long as the original apostles were alive, who had that living faith. They'd seen Christ dead, the blood gushing out when that spear was thrust in. They'd seen his body slump. They'd seen him. They knew he was dead. Dead as a doornail. Then they came around and they went all over the Roman Empire saying, He is risen. He is risen. The Son of God has risen from the dead. Jesus is the Christ. And they were inspired. And they believed God. And they remembered all those miracles that Jesus had done. And they remembered the fact that he had told them to go out, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. And they did that. As you read the book of Acts, you see that some of that absolute exaltation began to fade and you didn't get quite as many healings near the end as at the beginning but they nevertheless did that and you read up at the last part of the book of acts where paul as you know went to this island and the barbaric people the backward people there took care of him and the others who were shipwrecked and he healed uh, this leading man of the island and then others came and he healed them too because these people had took taken in uh, Paul, God's servants, and the others on the ship, and uh, and blessed them. So God blessed them for that and caused many of them to be healed near the end of Paul's ministry. So God is the same if people put their trust in God and so on. Healing involves forgiveness of sin. Brethren, another thing healing involves is faith. Notice verse 2. Go back to that. Behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and Jesus seeing their faith. As you know, one of the other accounts, I think it's Mark, describes how they actually broke up apparently a tile roof and lifted the tiles off. And probably they were in this house. They heard the crunching and creaking as the tiles was pulled off. And this fellow was put right down in a cot by ropes or something. And Jesus said, wow, these guys are really zealous. They are zealous. And he perceived their faith and he honored their faith. And he healed that man right there. Faith is very much involved, of course, in healing. And then, as you see in verse 29 here, chapter 9, verse 29, it talks about blind men coming. And he said in verse 28, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it unto you. It's done often according to your faith. Sometimes they didn't have any faith. When people healed that man at the gate called Beautiful, the crippled man, the crippled man was expecting money. 
And God at the beginning was showing his power through Christ, whether people always had faith or not, he healed some anyway. And then when the apostles started out, he healed this man there who was just asking for money. Didn't say he expected to be healed. He expected to receive something. And, of course, he wanted some money. And so uh, Peter said, silver and gold have I none. He knew what the man wanted. He said, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. But normally, once you know the truth, unto him much is given, of him much is required. You know that scripture. Unto whom much is given, of him much is required. And so once we know the truth, God expects us to exercise faith and to have faith and trust in God. And brethren, we've got to recapture that kind of living faith more than we have ever had before. Let's not get back to what we had in the late 40s or early 50s. We need to go above and beyond that. And with God's help, we can and we will. But we certainly need to do our part. Turn to Isaiah 53 now that Jesus was quoting from. It says Jesus healed the people because of what was written back there. Turn back there for a minute for me, with me. Isaiah 53. And he's talking here about this man that who was to come who had no form or comeliness, no beauty. He is despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the coming Messiah who is to be killed. Surely, verse 4, he has borne our griefs. And the margin shows here, printed right in here by the editors, the literal Greek word means sicknesses, it says. He has borne our sicknesses and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That's what the carnal Jews thought was happening. They didn't know he was suffering because it was God's will to pay for their sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. So part of that wounding was not just a spear, but that terrible scourging he received the night before he was killed. And that scourging, it was the stripes of his body, the suffering he went through that was specifically meant to pay for our physical mistakes and sins and carelessness. Carelessness with the temple of the Holy Spirit. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and that by his stripes we are healed. Now, Peter quotes that in the New Testament as by his stripes we were healed. That's First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. So Peter is allowed to paraphrase it in a slightly different way because by the time Peter wrote, we were healed because Christ had already paid for our, our, our sin, you see. And in that sense, we were healed because when God says something, it's just as good as done. All we have to do is faithfully apply that promise to us and the vast majority of us will be healed. I want to say right here, you know this. Paul was not healed from this affliction that he had at one point. He besought God three times and God told him, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Occasionally God has a reason for letting something carry on for a while. And some of you might wonder, well, if we're all healed, uh, Mr. Meredith, why aren't you healed? I'm just answering some things that might come in your head. I'm not trying to defend myself because I make plenty of mistakes. God has every reason to let me die anyway because I'm very human. I'll be 81, 81 years old in a very, very few days. So think with your minds. <laughs> Excuse me, I don't talk like your pupils, but most of you know, brethren, that the vast majority of men on this earth die somewhere between 60 and 80. And now I'm virtually 81, and Jesus said, and not Jesus, but Moses, that men are given three score and ten, 
And if by reason of strength they're given 80 years, it's only sorrow and toil or however it's worded there. So I've already been blessed with about 11 years past the three score and 10. So you know what I mean. God doesn't have to make me like I was when I was 21. So don't anyone lose faith over the fact that I'm not as I was when I was 21 years old. I think you can figure that out. But it's strange how people can reason, you know, they say, well, what about you? Or what about some of our ministers who've died? We've had some ministers die that were in their 60s or 70s. And of course, Mr. Apartheid finally died. And God blessed him with 94 years of life. He lived 24 years beyond the three score and ten. Was very blessed in that way. And I'm so glad he did because I loved him. I liked him. He was one of my best friends for about a quarter of a century. But sometimes we run out of steam. We do not gain eternal life in this age. And most of us understand that. So if someone gets up in their 60s and has a sickness, remember, they say, well, you you should not die of a sickness. Well, what do you die of? (laughs) Sometimes I guess your body just comes apart. But you read the story of Elijah and said when Elijah died of the sickness with which he died and went on and said something else, just look that up in the story of Elijah. Yes, some of God's servants did die of sicknesses, but their work was fulfilled at that time and God allowed them to die. And just like God showed that Dick Armstrong was okay because he allowed Dick Armstrong three unusual miracles that he performed, God performed through him just within the last two months before he died. It was kind of like God is saying, Dick is okay, just understand. So God allowed Elijah to die, and it was okay because a few years later it shows how some... uh, Ishmaelites or some other people were coming along and they tried to put a dead man's body in Elisha's grave. You remember that story? And when this man's body touched the bones of Elisha, he was resurrected right there. (laughs) So God said, okay, this guy, he still honored Elisha even after his death, but it did allow him to die. So we do die somewhere. That that, uh, that our, our hope is in the resurrection from the dead. But don't give up on God if he doesn't let everybody live past, you know, 60 years of age or past 70 or past 80 or past 90. Some few of us will live up into our 80s. Some very, very few will live up into our 90s. I met a very lovely man and my wife and I both enjoyed meeting him up in the Rhode Island area whenever it was a couple of three years ago. And he was over 100 and he was recently, had recently died, I forget his name, but a very fine man, and God allowed him to live to be over 100. But that's certainly the exception to the rule. So we have to understand God's plan in all of this. And we must focus on Christ's sacrifice. He was beaten for our infirmities. He took our sins, our physical sins upon him. Notice, brethren, First Corinthians now, because when we take the Passover... You and I, and we sometimes say this, but sometimes we don't explain it, so I'm going to explain it here now, not just at Passover time. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and notice here in uh, verse 23, beginning. Paul writes, these carnal Corinthians who were arguing and fussing and getting drunk at the Passover and having all kinds of problems, he says, For I received from the Lord, Christ taught Paul in Arabia three years, as you read in Galatians chapter 1. I received, he received this directly from Christ. He didn't get it from the others. 
which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Some people argue about as the Passover, why don't we keep it when the Jews keep it on the 15th? Why don't we keep it another time? Christ kept it on the night before he died, and that's the evening beginning the 14th day, and that's what we do too, following Christ, and what Paul told the Corinthians. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So that broken bread at Passover, as we have explained before, but just meditate on it again, when we break that bread, it's a reminder of the broken body of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ's body, as you heard the whips whoop across the back of his body and scourging and the blood coursing down and him flinching with terrible pain, he took that on himself to help pay the penalty of our physical mistakes and our carelessness. So that pictured his broken body. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance. It's a memorial service. In the same manner, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant. Covenants were usually ratified with blood. He gave his own blood to ratify the new covenant. In my blood, this do as often as you drink it. doesn't say do it as often as you want to. He says as often as you do or do it. Whenever you do it, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. They did not normally observe birthdays in the New Testament church. It's not wrong to note your child's birthday and say, we're glad, Johnny, you've lived another year or have mother fix a special meal. Mr. Armstrong gave his mother a dozen red roses and things like that, but we're to have not to have a great big orgy like Herod did or like the Pharaoh had or these other men in the Bible were punished often for doing what they did on their birthdays. But at any rate, he said, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's what God has us remembered not our birthday. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner with a wrong attitude or wrong manner who does it carelessly, sloppily, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, the world, of course, doesn't understand that part, but comes to mind that uh, Martin Luther, you know, the founder of Protestantism, got terribly upset at the Catholic Church over quite a number of things. The biggest thing was they were selling indulgences. That is, you're free to indulge and sin, commit fornication, adultery, get drunk, whatever it is, if you pay so much money to build St. Peter's. That's one reason St. Peter's is so tremendously wealthy. You read that in church history. That was my master's thesis, the plain truth about the Protestant Reformation. I studied hundreds of hours on that. And down in Rome, he saw the Catholic priests laughing and talking and playing games. And some of them were were drinking the wine over and over and over. And they were getting drunk at the Passover. And they were seeing, or the, as the, at the Lord's Supper, I should say, communion, whatever they call it. And he said they were also uh, uh, seeing how fast they could say it in Latin. Blah, 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 and they drink some more wine and so on. That turned him off. Well, obviously, no one should take the Passover in kind of a silly, careless manner, the true Passover of God. For he who drinks and eats in an unworthy manner, that kind of a careless attitude, and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, not just his blood, but his body. His body was broken to pay for our sins, our physical sins. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Obviously, they weren't going to sleep for an afternoon nap. They were dead prematurely. 
For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So God rebukes and chastens every son he loves. He rebukes and chastens every nation he loves. That's one reason our nation is going to have these terrible problems that are already beginning. But he loves us. And sometimes he chastens us by helping, letting us have financial problems or job losses or lose friends or other things happen. But sometimes he does it through our physical body and humbles us through pain, through sickness. And it drives us more to our knees. And that's good for us. That's good for us. So he allows that. And just like God told Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul was allowed to have that as far as we know, clear up to his death. We don't know if God ever healed him of that particular thing. So God uses physical infirmity and sickness to humble us, but sometimes it's because we need humbling. Paul said, lest I be exalted by the abundance of revelation. He said, I know a man in Christ who was taken to the third heaven. He had marvelous revelations. And some of these things, because Paul was so smart and so capable, could have easily gone to Paul's head. And he thought, could have thought, I'm the great one. Well, Paul, God knew Paul's attitude was basically right, but he must have thought to keep my, my servant Paul humble, I'll, uh, you know, I'll have a pinched nerve in his back or his eye or whatever it was. And Paul was kept very humble by whatever God allowed to happen to him. We all have those things from time to time and we should try to learn from them. So God chastens us through sickness sometimes. So we must repent as we think about what is wrong with us. We must repent of physical sins. Think about what have I done that's breaking God's physical laws of nature? And what am I doing spiritually? Am I sitting here lusting after some other woman? Am I committing adultery or murder or violence in my mind? Well, I'll get this guy later. You've got to bring every thought into captivity to Christ. So you have to think, what physical or spiritual mistake am I making and repent of sin because his physical healing is a matter of forgiveness. And it might involve a spiritual sin. It might and often does involve a physical sin as well. So we have to understand. And how dare, I want to ask this question, how dare we expect forgiveness from God When we go right on breaking God's laws, spiritually or physically. Think about that, brethren. Should God be so anxious to heal you right away or reasonably soon if you go right on eating wrong foods, drinking too much, or drinking lots of Coke and Pepsi-Cola and all these colas that are just loaded with sugar, doing other things that you know are wrong? Or eating and eating and eating and getting fatter and fatter and fatter. And that's wrong too. And some of you have a tendency toward that. I know and I don't. So I'm not proud of that. I don't have to fight that particular problem. But some of you do. So we have to think about it. What laws, physical or spiritual, are we breaking? And in talking to some of our brethren here about this sermon ahead of time, Four different individuals mentioned to me, you ought to talk about people and their eating habits and the way they live. They're bringing on some of these problems on themselves. And that's true. So I'm telling you this in love. I'm not trying to pick on any of you, but you have to understand that most of you have read it. 
This, in the, in the uh, local, in the local paper, in the New York Times, in the Wall Street Journal, on TV, they have talked regularly over the last two or three years about an absolute epidemic of obesity. That's the term they've used. An epidemic of fat people. My wife and I have gone to Europe many times. I've gone to Europe probably eight to twelve times over the years. And they just do not have near as many fat people over there, even in Italy, where they eat a lot of pasta. Why? They eat smaller portions over there generally. Smaller portions. We Americans are used to eating and eating and eating until we're absolutely full. We're stuffed. And secondly, they walk and they walk and they walk and they walk. And most of us sit and sit and sit. And I have seen even young people who won't go down the street even a block and a half to a restaurant. They've got to get in the car to do that. They just won't walk. They won't exercise. Some people hate exercise. Every now and then I would give a forum on exercise in Ambassador College for the students. And they were usually in good shape being younger. But Ted Armstrong mentioned to me one time, uh, humorously and yet in a good-natured way, he said, Rod, he says, when you tell the kids to exercise, he said, the athletes will usually go out and exercise more than ever, but the ones who don't like exercise, they'll keep right on sitting. And that's often the truth. The ones who just won't exercise, they won't change. And brethren, you've got to get over that. More of you have got to learn to get out and walk regularly, exercise regularly, lose weight or else... The or else is to die. We don't want you to die. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. But you will die prematurely in most cases if you get very fat and you just will not lose weight and you will not exercise. And many, many articles have been coming out in the regular media, as I've said. In our local paper, the Charlotte Observer, whole sections of health every Tuesday, I think it is, in the Wall Street Journal and other magazines and papers and television specials on the epidemic of obesity in America. And I've talked to some of our brethren in Europe and our ministers over there. They say, that's right. These Europeans walk and walk and walk. And so many in America are used to sitting all day at their desk and they're used to sitting in the car. They will not walk. So start doing it. Don't Right, walk five miles the first day, walk a little bit so you don't get a heart attack, walk a quarter of a mile, half a mile, a mile, and build up to where you are walking three or four miles a day, or you're going to the gym and doing an equivalent, you know, to where you can do some kind of aerobic exercise. Aerobic means the kind of exercise where you're puffing and perspiring. Aerobic literally is a Greek word meaning with wind. You're huffing and puffing. You get my point. In basketball, you're running up and down the court, and you get to huffing and puffing, and that's good. Golf doesn't give you that same amount of exercise. You might play 18 holes of golf and get one-tenth the amount of exercise you'd get in half an hour of basketball. I used to think golf was for old men. I still do. I'm not old enough to play golf. <laughs> I'm kidding. But you know what I mean. If you play long enough, you can get some exercise. But anyway, you better play vigorously. I remember that uh, two different ministers in the past who were my friends took me down at separate times to learn to play golf. And each time it was down in the Rose Bowl. And uh, it was smoggy. And I got to breathing this. It was hot and uh, this smoggy air. And then we'd behind another couple of men or three ahead of us who were smoking and cussing. And we were waiting and standing and waiting on them to take a club and hit a little tiny ball to go in a hole. And I thought, what is this? 
I could go over to the gym and play handball or racquetball and go down and lift weights and get 10 or 25 times more exercise in one hour than I'd get in two hours of playing golf. So anyway, uh, you can, so I'm not against golf. Sound like I am. <laughs> but don't play golf for your main exercise. If you do, you'll probably die. Uh, prematurely, I mean. We all die sometime. Get some aerobic exercise where you can run and walk where it's, you're getting, you're puffing and puffing and puffing and where you can get some real exercise and build your heart in that way. And don't be a weekend warrior. Most of you have read that, those articles on that. Sometimes a businessman will sit all day at his desk and not take walks every morning. And then he'll go out Sunday afternoon and play 18 holes of golf. And then he'll have a heart attack and die. Is golf bad? No. He just tried to do too much and he's not doing anything regularly. If you exercise, brethren, you need to exercise. Nearly all the experts agree on this at least four times a week. Before I had my stroke, I was trying to exercise six times a week, and then if I missed, I was still doing five, and if I really missed, I was still doing four. And I would go over and walk and run around the track in the Siski Y, uh, either a mile and a half or a mile or whatever, depending on how I, how tired I was that evening. So this was all, I was already up in my seventies, get it? And then I'd go down and lift weights. Afterward, not big weights, but weights to give me a certain amount of strength. The young men finally told me after had been doing that a year or two, they said, boy, you set an example for us. That's amazing. When they, you know, they'd hang around, we'd kid each other, and they finally found out how old I was. They thought I didn't look that old, but they found out I was whatever it was at the time, 73 or 75 or 78. So I did have a good life for 78 years before this hit. And exercise did not hurt me uh, at all in that sense. I may have overdone it at times as an older man. But get your exercise and do it regularly, regularly. Once a week is not the answer. Then I think a number of the brethren have mentioned we ought to tell you, and a couple mentioned my old booklet on this. I wrote a booklet back in the Worldwide Church. Some of you older brethren I know have commented on it and read it. It was entitled Seven Laws of Radiant Health. Seven Laws of Radiant Health. Maybe I should rewrite that booklet. Now, Dr. Winnell and Dr. Scott Winnell could write a more erudite booklet because they've studied public health. But these are just plain, simple things that work. And maybe I should do it in plain, simple language again. It might inspire the brethren. Here are the seven laws of radiant health. I hope a few note-takers are taking notes. You'll write them down. First of all, Maintain a really good diet. Maintain a good diet. As Mr. Armstrong used to say over and over, eat good natural foods, not foods that have been all doctored up. And eat fresh fruits and vegetables that will spoil before they spoil. And remember, brethren, one of the big problems in our whole society is people eating over and over foodless foods. The foods that you get out of a box or a can have usually been doctored up. They've had harmful substances put in there. And often the vitamins have been actually killed because they have pasteurized them and homogenized them and everything else. And the vitamins are gone. Then sometimes they put artificial vitamins back in that it has been proved don't do your body any good at all. So you've got to get food that has not been all doctored up. Try to get genuine whole wheat bread genuine raw milk, 
genuine fresh vegetables, genuine whatever, you know, good fruit, and this is what's best for you. Even then, you can't avoid every problem. I know that because I know one of our ministers, Mr. Bill Rapp, was in Pasadena, and I know the Mrs. Uh, Murray and the Davises and Mrs. Olson and others remember Mr. Rapp. But he died of leukemia, and they thought it was partly because right across from his house, they had this plane flying low across the right, was open fields and some kind of crops were growing, and there were airplane sprays there, spraying, 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 and he was probably breathing all that poison. We can't avoid every poison in the air. Our air has been polluted, our water has been polluted, our food has been doctored up, and God knows that. And sometimes we have to beseech God with all our heart to please go above and beyond and heal us anyway. But he does want us to do our part. That's fair. He does want us to do our part to take care of our body and not to sit all the time and not to just quit exercising and not to eat and eat and eat and get grossly fat. Take care of your body. And not just get fat, it's a matter your heart is a muscle that has to be exercised regularly. And you exercise it by walking or running or bicycling, get a home bicycle, you know, or you could sit on this machine and these other kinds of machines and get your regular aerobic exercise regularly and build your body in that way. So get a good diet. Secondly, get vigorous, regular exercise. And I've already explained that. Paul told Timothy, exercise prophets little, but as you look up the scripture carefully in the Greek, which I've studied, I taught the epistles of Paul class for about 30 years, it can be translated equally well, and many of the scholars think it's better to say uh, exercise prophets for a little while, but godliness prophets for eternity. If you see the point there, the emphasis in on godliness for eternity and exercise for a little while. It's kind of a matter of timing. So exercise will profit you for a few days, but you'd better come back and get more exercise and don't wait a month and get more exercise. <laughs> exercise at least two or three times a, mo- a week and preferably four times or five times a week. Exercise profits for a little while, but godliness profits for eternity. It's so important. I'm emphasizing exercise and diet because those are the two biggies. They're the most important physical sins that we often commit, the most terrible, let's say. Then thirdly, get regular sleep and rest. Some people keep going and keep going and keep going on coffee and stimulants and they won't rest. Your body does need regular sleep at night. And if you're old and have problems, get a nap in the daytime. Some of the most famous men in the world who accomplished so much were regular nappers. Sir Winston Churchill took a nap every afternoon, not for 20 minutes, but for two to two and one half hours. And it even frustrated uh, General Dwight Eisenhower, who was head of the uh, Ornormandy Invasion Force, you know, overlord, because he had to meet with Churchill on military things. Churchill always got heavily involved in the military, and it frustrated. They tried to, they had to wait till the old man woke up from his nap. But he would, he would, uh, he, he wanted to be on top in Parliament, kind of a music, if I haven't told you this. He had a system. He, Parliament started in Britain because many of the men in Parliament had a regular job, 
and they would get off work, and Parliament didn't even start their session. I think it was until 8.30, so they'd go from 8.30 until 11 or 11.30, and then the decisions afterward were often made by this buddy system in the cloakrooms where they talk and have a glass of wine or whatever after Parliament, say up till 12 or 12.30 at night. Churchill knew that. So by having a long nap in the afternoon, he was right like he was alert. He was in charge. These other guys were so tired they didn't know what was going on. So Churchill then would stay up late to get to bed at 1 a.m. And he would usually get up about 7.30, maybe after six and a half hours, and read the paper in bed and have breakfast in bed and everything else in bed, as he often tell, uh, tell you read about that all the time. Then he would finally get up and bathe and take a walk in his garden, and then he would start uh, his work and signing papers and get on the phone or having meetings. And then at lunch, he'd have a big lunch. And then, uh, often with wine, he drank more than normally uh, would be ideal. It finally killed him at age 90, however. But <laughs> anyway, he lived on anyway. And uh, But then he would maybe have another meeting or sign some more things after lunch, but then he would take his nap. And sometimes he'd be there for two and one-half hours. Then he'd get up and get ready for Parliament and have a nice dinner and then go into Parliament. But all the other guys were tired. They'd been working all day, and Churchill had had his power nap. He had a really power nap, that guy, and so he was in charge. John Foster Dulles, Secretary of State, who was very capable, he took power naps. And many of our great leaders have taken regular naps and you'll read about that in a number of places. So it's not wrong to get rest and sleep as you need it. You young people don't need too long a nap. I'm not telling all the office to take over two hours of the daytime. <laughs> Once you get up in their 70s or 80s, we'll give you permission to do that. Then cleanliness. Often the doctors and nurses will tell us how important that is. If you go around and you don't clean up and keep your hands clean and be careful after you touch, you know, public you know, toilets and, and uh, handles and door handles and everything else, you can get germs. Cleanliness, they say, is next to godliness. So try to keep your body very clean. Third, or fifthly, I mean, is fresh air and sunshine. And some of the old physical culture people talked a lot about that, and that is helpful. Sometimes in our cities it's hard to get fresh air. But if you can, get out and walk in the fresh air and get some sunshine. Vitamin D, as you note, the articles are coming out, a lot of them this last year or two, on how Americans are, are short vitamin D. And you get vitamin D as in donkey, D, because of a lack of sunshine. Sunshine, it's called the sunshine vitamin. So it's very good to get sunshine. Sixth, tremendously important, the sixth key to radiant health is avoid bodily injury. You can be a young woman and take aerobic dancing and get all kinds of exercise and stretches and be beautiful and vibrant. And you're a young man and you can run laps and lift weights and get a great big muscles and just be as strong as anything. And you can step right in front of the truck. And the truck is stronger than you are, believe it or not. <laughs> it's all over. It's all over. One slip and you're dead sometimes. Avoid bodily injury. That is so important, especially in our society. How much more than in the past? Well, we've got all these cars careening around and all the other things that didn't used to have to avoid. Very important. Seventh, the seventh point of radiant health is to think positive. The power of positive thinking. Now, Norman Vincent Peale wrote that book entitled that, 
And the principle is good, but that's not the answer to all the problems in the world, of course. You can think very positively, but if you're not really obeying God and the atomic bomb comes down, you know, why all the positive thinking in the world won't protect you. Only God can protect you in the ultimate. But in the meantime, as they often say, it's not what you're eating that's hurting you. It's not what you're eating. It's what's eating you. You're all torn up inside and you're mad and you're frustrated and you're agitated and you're mad at people. That is going to give you ulcers. It's going to give you high blood pressure. It's going to give you all kinds of things. Learn to think positive. And you remember back in, I think it's in Ephesians or Colossians, says, think on these things, you know, the things of love and beauty and kindness and what is good. Think on those kinds of things. Don't always be mad at the world or mad at other people. It will kill you. So don't let yourself get into negative thinking. Think positively. My mother was a wonderful example of that. She loved people. She liked people. And she lived to be age 94. And the thing that finally killed her, she wanted to have a dessert almost every night. And I warned her about that one time. Over in Europe, I remember Mrs. Mrs. Ames were there, I think, at the time I warned her. And she looked at me so pitifully. She said, Rod, if I can't have dessert, I don't even want to live. So I shut up. <laughs> and the desserts did kill her at age 94. <laughs> okay, how long, how long can you live? Anyway, I'm kidding. Must have been old age. But anyway, uh, she did have a, have a long life, I, I think, because she did, you know, eat good otherwise. And she didn't eat a lot of junk food, and she did think positively. She liked people, she liked activities, and she tried to have a good positive way of looking at things. And I certainly tried to learn from her, and most of all from God. If you are breaking these physical laws, brethren, you are sinning. It's physical mistakes, physical transgressions, but you're sinning against your body. And your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So learn that. How can you expect God to intervene supernaturally and you go right ahead and eat too much? You go right ahead and won't exercise. You go right ahead and eat carelessly. You go right ahead and grind your guts and you hate people and you resent people and you're fighting at people and all torn up inside because of negative attitudes. Don't do that. Repent. What's the first message that John the Baptist gave? Repent, he said. You go back when Christ started out, the first words, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, repent and believe the gospel. And each one of God's servants started out. When Peter started the New Testament church on the day of Pentecost, what's the first thing he said? Repent and, and, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. We need to be willing to change. We need to be willing to acknowledge that we have been wrong. Some of us have been wrong in the way we've taken care or rather not taken care of our bodies. And some of us have been wrong. All of us have been wrong, of course, in watering down God's laws and allowing wrong thoughts and wrong attitudes and wrong words and wrong actions to permeate our way of life. And so we have to repent. And I have to repent every single day of my life. Every day of my life, I ask God to forgive me, and I try to think of any major things I did yesterday that were wrong. And I don't mean to give you the idea I'm out killing and committing adultery. I'm not, but I have vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed, and God is going to hold me to a higher standard, and I know that. 
So you have to repent, and every one of us has to keep repenting every day that we live. And if you're going to be in God's kingdom, please learn to do that and learn to take correction. Some people just cannot take correction. It tears them to pieces to admit they're wrong and just say, I was wrong. So try to think of that and learn from that. Repent of breaking God's physical laws and spiritual laws. If you do that, you're sinning. Now, another thing, brethren, we need to understand is that uh, a very important thing that either spiritual or physical sin destroys faith. When you understand you're doing wrong, sin is a great destroyer of faith. Guilt destroys faith. Turn to Romans, uh, if you would at this point, Romans 14 and... uh, In your New Testament here, Romans chapter 14, and beginning at verse 23, Paul is talking about the kingdom of God is not food and drink and and not to eat things offered to idols, but, but that's not the main thing. He says in verse 20, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. Some food might be all right, But if people worry about it because it might have been offered to an idol, then it's better not to do it for the sake of the other person. But he said, it is good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. If we were to go onto the backwoods of India, where some of them are really very sincere Hindus over there, and they believe in the sacred cow, If you would kill a cow and eat it, that's terrible to them. So if we get in there more than we are now with the gospel, it's better to be very careful. We don't want to take some new member of the church there and go down and order a big steak. That might really shake him. He might sort of know better, and yet all his life he's heard that's bad. And the same thing, you must not drink wine if that really offends people badly, and they don't understand that. So be careful. Do you have faith? In other words, do you have faith you can do these things because you know God allows it? Have it to yourself, or as the commentaries acknowledge, exercise it to yourself before God. In other words, if you can't drink a glass of wine with some new brother somewhere, it's not wrong to go home and later have a glass of wine. I didn't say a bottle of wine, but a glass or two of wine in your home where you're not hurting anyone's faith. Have it to yourself or exercise it before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. In other words, you better be sure you do what you understand is right and do it in a way that does not offend others. But he who doubts, if you think you shouldn't do something, even though your understanding might be wrong at the time, if you sincerely believe it's wrong to drink wine, then don't drink it. God does not command you to drink wine except for Passover. So he who doubts is condemned if he eats, eats something he feels is wrong because he does not eat it from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. I've told you many times about my old Methodist grandmother whom I loved and admired because she was so kind and good and giving with what she knew. God had not called her to the full truth, but she is one among many who used to talk about uh, the liquor traffic and demon rum and she used these phrases to make you think all oh, liquor was just awful. Well, my uncle who wrote the old correspondence course, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, he had that drummed into his head. And when he first came into the church, 
he thought it was wrong and he did not drink wine. And he went to Mr. Herbert Armstrong. He told me about it later. And Mr. Armstrong said, well, Dr. Meredith, he said, you don't have to drink wine except a little thimble full at the Passover. That wouldn't bother you. Well, that's okay. So just don't drink it unless you come to prove it's okay. So it was, I don't remember how long. It wasn't right away. It was a year or two later. He and Aunt Ethel divided, invited me up to their house in Altadena, up above Pasadena. They had a very small house there at first. But anyway, uh, there were just the two of them. And he, of all things, pulled out a bottle of wine. And we each had a glass of wine with our meal. But the kind of amusing thing to me is guess where the wine was from? It was from Israel. <laughs> I know the way he thought somehow that made it a little bit better. It came from where Christ did. He knew Christ would drink that kind of wine. So he had the wine from Israel. Then later he began to drink other kinds of wine and occasionally beer, although mainly just red wine. But anyway, be careful. You don't want to push people into something that offends their conscience. It's not necessary. But whatever is not a faith is sin. If you know you should exercise and you will not, if you know you should not eat that extra helping of potatoes, you go ahead and eat it anyway. You ought to be convicted in your mind. And whatever is not a faith is sin. You say, are you putting me on a guilt trip? Yes. (laughs) I want you to get on a guilt trip. I want you to take care of yourself and not do those things. Honor God. Glorify God in your body. Learn to say no to that extra glass of liquor. Learn to say no to that extra helping of bread or potatoes or something that will hurt you and so on. Whatever is not a faith is sin. And brethren, when you understand faith, this whole thing of faith and overall faith in God is all involved in the kind of faith you would have in being healed. You follow me? You don't just have faith over here and faith over there. You learn better learn to have a total reliance on God in every phase of your life. You know you should not commit adultery or fornication. You cannot have that kind of behavior and have faith in God. You've got to flee fornication, even the thoughts of it, even the thoughts of it. I think I've told you how uh, when I first came to college, or have I told you, but I tell these stories too many times, but Dick Armstrong took Herman Hay and I and Raymond Cole, one of the original students, down to Ensenada, past Tijuana. Even then, Ensenada was sort of a, a Navy uh, whorehouse, excuse the expression, but it was noted for that. But we went on about 20 or 30 miles south to Ensenada, which is more of a uh, just a resort. And uh, it was safe in those days. And we stayed in this inexpensive hotel and the four of us and had a nice time. But the next morning, Herman Hay had been out early morning walking, which he often did. He was a farm boy. And he got up with the chickens and the rest of us slept in. <laughs> but he came. We were eating breakfast and we thought, well, Herman's out for his walk. And he came literally running into the dining room and his face was red. He was agitated. I said, what's wrong, Herman? He was my roommate. And he said, I had these these prostitutes accost me and, you know, tried to get me to, to, to go with them into their house of prostitution. He said he never had that happen before. And it really shook him. And he said, God says, flee fornication. So he fled. He ran. <laughs> and that was good. Might have been amusing, but he was very sincere and he ran to get away from there. So uh, at any rate, that was interesting. 
But if you have that attitude, you will flee uh, adultery, fornication, drunkenness, drug addiction, whatever it is. Go your best to get clear away from it. Don't mess with it. Don't entertain sin. Did Christ ever have the thought of a beautiful young woman come into his mind? Of course he did. He had normal hormones like any other young man. But when the thought, well, she's really pretty and watch her, you know, hair bouncing and her skirt and the breeze. And here's this beautiful young woman walking over here. Nothing wrong with that. But then if your body, your mind gets on, well, what's this and what's that? And you start to picture kissing and caressing her. Then you stop right there and you turn your mind and you think about a cold shower or whatever else you think about. You get your mind somewhere else. That's what Jesus did. He was normal, but he overcame sin in the flesh. He fled fornication. He fled adultery. And he lived without any sex for 33 and one-half years. And he was very healthy. And the girls back there in Israel must have been very beautiful. Because they didn't have any of these foodless foods. They were out in the sunshine and the fresh air all day, walking and this and that. I bet they were extremely beautiful. But Christ guided his mind You bring every thought into captivity to Christ. And that involves the kind of food you eat, how much wine you drink or liquor, and anything else you do. So you've got to have that overall concept of faith and walk by faith in every single part of your life. Because guilt destroys faith. Turn back to 1 John chapter 3, if you would, at this point. 1 John, back near the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter 3. Notice what it says here at 1 John 3 and verse 22. And whatever we ask, in other words, when we pray, we're asking God for something. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why? Because we keep His commandments, plural, all of them, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. But you see, if we don't keep his commandments and do those things pleasing in his sight, then we're sinning and we certainly cannot have the same degree of faith we would if we obeyed God. Guilt destroys faith. And some of you and some of your brethren in Perth and some of your brethren in Johannesburg and some of your brethren in London, some of your brethren around the world are sinning. Let's all learn that lesson, to build faith, walk with God. So if you sense and really mean it that you are trying to walk with God, talk with God, commune with God, and let Christ live his life in you all day long, then you will have greater faith. And whatever is not a faith is sin. So we want to really understand that and build that kind of faith. Notice back in James chapter 5, James chapter 5 And I'm going to begin reading here in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is any among you sick? Are you sick? Do you want to be healed? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And we do that right in this church, as you know. Let them pray over him and... uh, anointing him with oil, because olive oil is a symbol of God's Spirit. And the prayer of faith, there it is, faith again. You need to trust in God. That basic thing, faith, frankly, brethren, equals love. If you really love God 
and you walk with God, you know God, then you will trust God. If you love someone deeply, you will learn to trust them. And how much more God, because we humans make mistakes. God never makes a mistake. If you obey God, if you have faith in God, you love God, then you will obey God. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. 1 John 5, 3. So understand that these all things all go together. Faith and love and obedience is the whole way of life where you put your faith and trust in God. And God wants us to have that absolute trust in him. If we trust in him and walk with him, we will live forever. He wants that kind of attitude in us. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. There it is again. Sins. It's tied in with healing. It's tied in with faith. Confess your trespasses. And it can be translated weaknesses. It could include physical sins. One to another. And pray for one another. Why? That you may be healed. This might involve spiritual healing. But normally this is used for physical healing. The effective fervent prayer. Don't pray half-heartedly. Cry out to God. Help me, Father. Give me the faith of Jesus. Help me to walk and live by faith. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So, brethren, learn that lesson. And let's, as a church, regain the kind of faith we ought to have. Let's build the faith of the apostles. Let's build the faith of Jesus Christ. And let's pray for the gifts of the Holy Spirit in this church and in this ministry that we may have faith. And that we begin more than we have ever done to heal the sick, discern spirits, cast out demons, get God's message all over those world with great power. And he will back up the preaching of the word with the accompanying signs. But when Jesus came back home, I'm not going to turn and read this. We're running short here. But Mark 6, look up Mark 6, 1 to 6, and you'll see when even Jesus, the son of God, came back to his home And he could do no mighty work there because of their, not his, because of their unbelief. Their unbelief, not his unbelief. God demands an atmosphere of faith. And we in this church must build an atmosphere of faith and put our faith and trust in God and walk with God in the entire spectrum of our lives. So we will have faith in the great God who's now intervening in human affairs. Let's build faith. Let's cry out to God for healings. Let's cry out to God for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's walk with God. And that way we can walk right over into God's kingdom. Let's make this a crusade. I want to have you understand this is not a passing sermon. This is a basic theme of this church to restore original Christianity. And the original Christianity, the original preaching of the gospel is preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons this is a big thing let's make this a crusade and i hope all of you will pray about it and do everything you can to do your part to bring this about